Good morning, Elevation. Good to be with you once again in this virtual space. So I got an email this week from the coach of Jude's baseball team. Jude plays travel baseball, and so this kind of an email was just welcome news because when you start training for baseball, you know that spring is just around the corner. And when I read this email and the coach was talking about doing winter workouts and starting to book some space in the next few weeks, I started to think about how the winter workouts for a team like that, it's all about preparing for the season ahead. And here we are at the very beginning of Lent, which is also a season of preparation. We're preparing ourselves to celebrate Easter well and to live well on the other side of Easter. And on Sunday mornings, we're going to be gathering around a series of parables, stories that Jesus told to illustrate the overwhelming goodness of God's grace and mercy in our lives. That's what we're going to spend our time on these next few Sundays together. Because isn't that what we're hungering for in some way or another? To be accepted, to be loved for who we are, to be helped out of whatever various jams we get ourselves into, to be forgiven, to be saved. Isn't that what all of us are hungering for? In our call to worship, every time we gather, we have this line that says that one of the reasons we're gathered is to recenter ourselves in the story of Jesus. And one of the ways that we can do this is by actually situating ourselves in the stories that Jesus tells. I saw this great commercial, and maybe you've seen it recently. It's for Jif peanut butter. And this, the slogan says, tasting Jif peanut butter is like tasting peanut butter for the first time every time. And it shows this guy and he's tasting this peanut butter. And every time he tastes it, he's like, whoa. And he's like shocked as if it's the first time he'd ever tasted it. Now, when it comes to the parables that Jesus told, a lot of us have heard these before. And so it can be easy to kind of say, yeah, I've heard this one. Um, some of us are hearing this for the first time, and I'm excited to be able to share these stories with you. But my hope is that, like Jeff Peanut Butter, we can all kind of hear these stories again as if it were for the first time every time we hear it. The other thing that I was thinking about is that I think that the good news that's tucked in these parables about the grace of God is good news for a lot of people. And so this might be a, a reminder to you of just how easy it is to extend an invitation for people in your circles of influence, your neighbors, your friends, your extended family, to watch a service. If there's something that is said this morning, something that comes across in one of these next weeks that you think, man, there's someone in my life who would really benefit from hearing this kind of message, then share it with them. It's really that easy. Now, the parables that we'll be looking at, they all feature characters who aren't treated the way that we would expect them to be treated. And in some cases, they're not treated the way we would want them to be treated. My hope is that after we get over the shock of whatever it is that we hear, we'll have a better sense of how God sees us and that we'll grow in our ability to see other people in a similar light. There's this great line from the medieval writer Thomas Akempis, They travel lightly whom God's grace carries. And it is my prayer that God's grace will carry us through this season of Lent together. My hope is that this will be a season of stripping down our efforts and receiving this grace from God. So the first parable we're going to look at, well, it actually sounds like the start of a classic stereotype joke. You know, the one that begins like a priest and a rabbi walk into a bar or three blondes walk into the woods, like whatever. Um, Jesus kind of starts off this parable this way as well. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One's a Pharisee, the other's a tax collector. Now, while the parable is not a joke, Jesus actually does take a couple of common stereotypes of his day and uses them to flip the crowd's perception of who is most likely to win God's favor. So two characters, let's introduce ourselves to them. A Pharisee and a tax collector. A Pharisee would be a member of a certain 
sect within Judaism. So it might be like a Baptist or a Lutheran today. Uh, so they were committed to not only living out all of God's commandments in the law, but they also had a really strict observation of their own. They would be very pious, very faithful people. They would pray regularly. Uh, a tax collector. Now, a tax collector may be at the other end of the spectrum in society. They would have been a Jew who was working for the Romans. Now, the Romans were occupying the Jewish, Jewish homeland, um, and so they would employ these Jews as tax collectors to ta collect taxes from their own people because they knew where they were at. Now, tax collectors didn't have a very good reputation because they would often skim off the top. Uh, the Romans didn't care how much they ripped off their Jewish um, countrymen. Now, if Jesus had stopped after introducing these characters and, in, and asked the crowd which one of them was most likely to go home justified before God, there wouldn't have been a question. The people standing there would have said, well, obviously, the Pharisee is the one who goes home justified before God. After all, remember who Jesus' audience was. It was a group of people who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. Now, any parable worth listening to 2,000 years after it was first spoken is bound to raise some questions. And I'm going to ask you some questions this morning. First one is this. What do you want to happen to these two characters? So the story goes, two men go up to the temple to pray. One of them is a Pharisee, one of them is a tax collector. Which one of them do you want to see go home justified before God? Now, my guess is that unlike Jesus' first audience, most of you wouldn't be rooting, or most of you would be rooting for the tax collector, because honestly, who wants to root for a self-righteous know-it-all? None of us. But let's not write our Pharisee friend off too soon. He would have been an upstanding model citizen. He would have been a leader in the community. He would have been a religious role model. And he made some legitimate personal sacrifices as a way of devoting himself to God and others. Remember, he was fasting. He was giving a tenth of his income towards the temple. He strove to build his life on a foundation of faithfulness and a commitment to God. And at least this particular Pharisee credits God with it all. Remember how his prayer starts. God, I thank you for all of this. On the other hand, what does the tax collector have to offer? Well, nothing at all. So again, I'll ask you. Which one do you want to see go home justified before God? Now, my guess would be that you're still rooting for the tax collector, but why? Why would we? Well, I think it might have something to do with the fact that it's a character that we can more easily identify with. Maybe if we lived with a similar devotion to the Pharisee, we, like Jesus' original audience, would have been rooting for him instead. Well, that's what I'm like. That's how I live. I've got it all together. I'm devoted in this way. Therefore, that's the person who should be who should be sent home justified. But we know ourselves better than that, don't we? And I think that there's maybe this line that goes through our mind, something to the tune of, if the one who goes home justified before God is the one who has done everything right, well, then what hope is there for me? So the first takeaway from Jesus' story, a radical religious foundation shattering takeaway is that there is no hope at all for anyone who thinks that doing the right things will improve their standing in God's sight. Another way of putting it, in the words of Thomas Merton, a saint is not someone who is good, but who experiences the goodness of God. Now, at the end of the day, a parable isn't about its characters. It's not about the Pharisee. It's not about tax collector. A parable is about the people who hear it. Now, as a rule, I try to do my best to, be, to avoid being unnecessarily offensive in my sermons. I realize that, you know, in a position like this, there, 
there are things that I'm going to say that will come across the wrong way. Something I'm going to say will offend someone. Uh, I do my best to avoid that unnecessarily, right? In fact, uh, earlier I mentioned stereotype jokes and I actually had a couple of different ones I was thinking of telling and I was like, but why? Someone will get offended. So forget, we'll just leave the jokes out. But what I'm about to say is practically guaranteed to be offensive, but it might be one of the most important things I say about this parable. So I hope you hear it. If you're going to cast yourself as one of the characters in this parable, I think it should be the Pharisee. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't doubt for a moment that there are people who are more self-righteous than you, uh, who look down on people more than you do. But if you hear Jesus' words being about someone else, then you're wasting an incredible opportunity to take stock of your own heart. After all, that's why we crack open these 2,000-year-old stories to begin with. It's like we're asking, how might God use these sacred words to change my perspectives, shift my priorities, and redirect the course of my life? Now, Jesus' fictional Pharisee had a list of the kind of people that he abhorred. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, and, of course, tax collectors. Now, here's a tough question. What does your list look like? Who do you especially look down on? And a broader question, why? Now, I think it would be important for all of us to answer this question, either now, as you're kind of thinking and listening, or in the context of our neighbors groups in a little while this morning. Maybe the person on your list are people whose lifestyle doesn't match your idea of faithfulness, and so you look down on them. Maybe it's people who don't share the same political beliefs as you, so you look down on them. Maybe it's people who live in a certain neighborhood. Maybe it's people who commit certain crimes or certain offenses. I mean, the list could go on, but I think it's important for us to really try to name the kinds of people that we tend to look down on and ask ourselves why. Now, a couple of notes. Note number one, just because you have a perfectly good explanation for why you look down on someone doesn't mean that you should look down on them. You see, it's not that the tax collector wasn't doing anything wrong. Uh, one of the neat things about the Bible is that if you don't just focus on one little piece, but try to read a little broader context, some neat things happen like this. Our reading this morning is from Luke chapter 18, and Jesus tells this fictional story about a Pharisee and a tax collector. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus meets an actual tax collector. He's walking into this town. This man named Zacchaeus kind of climbs up this tree to get a better view of Jesus, and Jesus invites himself over to this tax collector's home. Now, Zacchaeus' response to this invitation is, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. So right off the bat, I mean, Zacchaeus is not defending himself. He is acknowledging, I live a crooked way of life, and if I'm going to have you in my home, I've got to find a way of making things right here. So yes, tax collectors, in a sense, have earned the right to be looked down on. But even if we're right about the other person, we can be wrong about ourselves. N.T. Wright makes a very interesting observation. I'm going to try to unpack this quote for you here. It is one thing to insist on walking south when the compass is pointing north. But to fix the compass so that it tells you that the wrong way is the right way is far, far worse. You can correct a mistake but once you tell yourself it wasn't a mistake, there's no way back. So this is what I think he means. Taking advantage of people, like the tax collector, is like insisting on walking south. You know that you're supposed to be walking north, but you choose to walk south. 
But looking down on others, like the Pharisee, that's a way of religion that fixes our compass the wrong way. See, the Pharisee made it so that the way he was living his life was about passing judgment on others and lifting himself up. And that's actually backwards. This is at least part of the reason that on another occasion, Jesus warned his followers saying, be careful, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees. See, he understood that this is the way that they were approaching the religious life and saying, be careful of that. Because if you let that in just a little bit of yeast, it will make its way through the whole batch of the dough of your life. The tax collector had a significant vice to overcome. True. But the Pharisee was trapped in an entire way of being that prevented him from living a truly God-honoring life. So, note number two. Just because you have a group of people around you who also look down on someone doesn't mean you should look down on them. Again, if we go to that story about Jesus and Zacchaeus in Luke 19, we hear that all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Again, If there's anyone that you find yourself looking down on, it will be easy for you to find people who agree with you, people who will pat you on the back and you can live a whole life in that echo chamber. But we need to be cautious of this. The truth is we all look down on everybody else. This parable is for us. Why are we this way though? Why do we look down on others? Now there are probably all kinds of reasons for this, but at least one of those reasons, in my opinion, is to keep the attention of ourselves and the attention of others, and probably the attention of God off of our own faults. See, if we can point at someone else and how they're falling short, it keeps the attention on them instead of the attention being on ourselves. See, not only does the Pharisee make sure that God knows about all of his positive actions, all of the good things he's doing, but he also points out the negative lifestyle of the tax collector who's standing beside him in the temple. It's like there's this idea that if you want to feel good about yourself, focus on the faults of others. But here's the kicker. It doesn't work. Now, it works in the moment, works in the short run, but certainly not in a lifetime. You can focus on someone's negativity and make you feel better in the moment, but at the end of the day, you know who you are. I know who I am, so it doesn't really work. There's this line again from Thomas Akempis written in the 15th century. He says, if a man justly and properly weighed his own actions, he would never render a harsh judgment against another man. This is honestly one of the more profound challenges that I think I've heard in a life of faith. And I'm going to read it again because Thomas Akempis was a monk and he's writing to monks, so it's all about men. But I'm going to flip it a little bit here uh, because it's worth repeating. If a woman justly and properly weighed her own actions, she would never render a harsh judgment against another woman. Now, so much of this comes down to our own insecurity as self-righteous judgment, it offers a cheaply made off-brand version of identity that isn't very becoming of a child of God. We need something more. We should be chasing after something better. Henry Nouwen writes that in a world that constantly asks us to make up our minds about other people, a non-judgmental presence seems nearly impossible, but it is one of the most beautiful fruits of a deep spiritual life. Now it's time to pay some attention to the tax collector and what Jesus has to say about this whole business. So verse 13 says, the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I read this story in the news maybe four or six weeks ago, and I thought this is an absolutely perfect illustration for this sermon that we're talking about this morning. It's about a guy from the UK who back in 2013 
got rid of a bunch of stuff, including a hard drive. And obviously he wasn't thinking about it at the time, but he kind of threw it in the garbage and it went off to the landfill site. At some point recently, he went looking for this hard drive, realized he had thrown it out and realized just what a big mistake that he had made. You see, on that hard drive were 7,500 bitcoins. Now, you don't need to understand cryptocurrency to understand where this story is going. At the time, they would have been worth a lot of money, so he probably should have been paying a little better attention than he was. But at the time of the article was written about a month or so ago, those bitcoins, which were located physically on that hard drive at the bottom of some dump, were worth around 280 million US dollars. Now, so he decided, I've got to do everything I can to get this back. So he approached the local town and he said, I will pay you a quarter of whatever I sell them for in order to have the rights to dig up your landfill. And he was going to spend half of what he sold them for to pay a bunch of people to dig up this landfill. And he would be left with a cool $70 million. Still not bad. Now, since the story has come out, Bitcoin has been going crazy and it's now worth probably north of 400 million US dollars. It's just crazy. So wild story. And the saddest part of it, perhaps, is that the township decided no, they weren't going to let him dig up this hard drive. And the story to me is a reminder that sometimes there is just nothing that we can do to make up for our past mistakes and failures. This guy made possibly the biggest financial mistake any human has ever made. And there's nothing he can do. He can't make up for it. Brennan Manning, reflecting on the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, writes, to be poor in spirit means to cling to your impoverished humanity and to have nothing to brag about before God. All I've got are mistakes I've made. I don't, I'm not going to stand before God and list all of the great things I've done and point out the mistakes other people have done. I'm just going to stand before him empty-handed. If we are able to accept our own frailty, our own shortcomings, maybe then we'll be able to learn how to avoid looking down on others the way that the Pharisee did. One of the followers of Jesus in the first century named Paul wrote a letter to the church in Rome. And in chapter 3, verse 23 to 24, he writes that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This is Paul's way of explaining what Jesus was saying in this parable. Everyone falls short. The only way that you can be made right in God's sight is by this free gift of grace. The message translation of that same passage reads this way. Out of sheer generosity, God put us in right standing with himself, a pure gift. He got us out of the mess we're in and restored us to where he always wanted us to be. Now, last week, our pastoral team got together and we put together these Lenten prayer packages. And hopefully um, a number of you have received them in the mail already. If you haven't, hopefully it'll be arriving in the next day or two. The idea is that every week there's a little card that has the week's passage of scripture, the parable we're talking about this morning, um, a prayer that we're recommending that you focus on and repeat through the course of the week, as well as instructions on an item to focus on. So for this first week, the item is a red first place ribbon. And to those of you who have never received a first place ribbon in anything before, I just want to say congratulations, way to go. Uh, New Year time would come. Uh, maybe maybe you're really so excited about receiving this red ribbon that you'll decide to like pin it on yourself and in the next Zoom call you're on. People will be like, hey, what's the ribbon for? It's just like, hey, just first place, you know, I don't know. Anyways, maybe not. So we wanted to give these ribbons out as the symbol for this week as a result of you didn't do anything to get them, to deserve them. You didn't do anything to earn this ribbon. You didn't run a race. You didn't win some competition to earn this. It just showed up in the mail. 
And that's what the grace of God is like. You don't get it because you did something right or because you did something well. And you don't not get it because of the bad things you've done or the things you've neglected to do. God just gives it. It just shows up in the mail and you get to pin it on your chest and acknowledge God's love for you. Luke 18 verse 14, Jesus kind of summarizes this parable. All who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The weekly prayer that we're asking you to focus on this week goes like this. May my awareness of faults in myself and others never open the door to spite, but grant me a deep appreciation for grace. I want to read a quote as we head towards the finish line here this morning. This comes from Robert Farrar Capon. It's a lengthy one, but it's a good one. And just try to, to picture this, if you can, in your mind's eye. In Jesus, God has put up a gone fishing sign on the religion shop. He has done the whole job in Jesus once and for all and simply invited us to believe it to trust the bizarre, unprovable proposition that in him, every last person on earth is already home free without a single religious exertion. No fasting to your knees fold, no prayers you have to get right or else, no standing on your head with your right thumb and your left ear reciting the creed, no nothing. The entire show has been set to rights in the mystery of Christ, even though nobody can see a single improvement. Yes, it's crazy. And yes, it's wild and outrageous and vulgar. And any God who would do such a thing is a God who has no taste. And worst of all, it doesn't sell worth beans. But it is good news. The only permanently good news there is. And therefore, I find it absolutely captivating. I hope that you find this message of God's grace absolutely captivating this morning. We're going to take some time, as we do every week, after we dismiss here, to join together with our neighbors groups. If you're just joining with us online and aren't part of a regular neighbors group, there'll be a link in the comment section now, and you can join in. We'd love to have you join in the conversation this morning. In closing, I'd like to invite us all to utter the same simple words of the tax collector in Jesus' parable as an invitation for God to respond to us right where we are. This will be our closing prayer. It's simple. There's not much to it, but that's all it requires when we come before God. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Amen. Peace to you.